Every book tells two stories. The first is the tale inside the page. The second is a story about its reader. Each book that we choose to keep on our shelves tells a chapter in the story of our lives. So join me, Alex Cool, as I speak to authors, illustrators, publishers and booksellers about their shelf life. My guest on Shelf Life this week is Matt Kane, the author of The Secret Life of Albert Entwistle, which is out now. Matt, welcome. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Uh, first off, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself for those of, for those listeners who don't know you and a little bit about your new book? Well, Alex, I've been around. Um, I used to work in the media. Um, for a long time, I made documentaries for ITV. Then I was the arts correspondent on Channel 4 News. And I was also editor-in-chief of Attitude magazine for a while. So I've done kind of TV production and journalism. And then towards the end of that media career, I was writing novels and getting that side of things going. And um, I devote myself to writing novels full time now. Um, the last one was called The Madonna of Bolton, which I think we're going to talk about a little later. And the new one is, as you say, called The Secret Life of Albert Entwistle. And it's about a shy, lonely and socially awkward postman in his 60s living in the northwest of England. And um, he's unhappy. We realise part of the reason is that he's secretly gay and has shut himself off from the world. But after a series of crises, he decides he doesn't want to be happy anymore. He doesn't want to be unhappy anymore, rather, I should say. He wants to be happy, in fact. And um, he thinks that the way to achieve happiness after so long is to set off in search of the love of his life, a man he hasn't seen for nearly 50 years. And that is the kind of main plot line of the book, the, um, the skeleton of it. And, you know, it's, but it's not just about his search to find the love of his life. It's how he's transformed along the way. Um, but obviously I don't want to give away too much. So that's probably all I should say for now. <laughs> we will probably uh, touch on bits of Albert uh, as we talk through today. Um, I, I, I have read it, you know, I've read it, I loved it. And um, I think for anyone who is sort of trying to place it as to what sort of book it is, I think it's it's very uplifting book. It's uh, sort of Rachel Joyce, Joanna Cannon type uh, book. But also, I think uh, if if anyone's read Libby Page, uh, she wrote The Lido, uh, which is about a sense of community, and her books are all about senses of communities and building communities. I think there's a lot of uh, similarities with Albert in in those as well. Um, well, it's funny you should say that because that I mean I have to admit I've never read any Libby Page, although I've just written her name down in order to rectify that situation. But um, it was always in my head as that being a key theme about um, Albert, the central character's connection um, to his community or lack of and how that grows along, along the way. But um, it was only through, um, you know, the pandemic of the last year and in particular the first lockdown when I was finishing off the book um, and our connection to our communities had been snatched away from all of us, that I realised, you know, just how potent that theme could be, and hopefully people will connect with it and engage with it now. I think they will. Um, now, I asked you to pick seven titles that have uh, changed or influenced your life in some way, um, but first, before I get we go on to those, I should just double check. Are you a big reader? Yes, massively. Funnily enough, when I was growing up, I was a big reader, but um, I was equally a cons an equally big consumer of um, films, TV shows, you know, theatre, pop music in particular. More of that later. Um, just kind of um, pop culture and well, culture in general. Um, 
as I've gone through life, partly because of my age, I'm in my 40s now, I've listened to pop music less. Um, living in London now, I watch more theatre than I did when I was growing up. And because of the job I do now, writing fiction, and also in the last year with the pandemic, of all the different cultural activities I do, reading has become, I mean, it probably was the number one anyway, but it's become even more so. So yeah, I am a very big reader. And, and a consumer of stories in general then as well. Yes. Just whatever Absolutely. form they're in. Yeah. Um, so how did you go about picking the seven titles? Well, interestingly, um, if somebody were to ask me for my seven favourite reads, um, it's not so much that I would struggle, but I, I, I could basically come up with several different lists, you know, depending on who I was speaking to or what books I kind of thought they would be into or um, the audience of the podcast and what I thought they might like. Um, and also your mood changes and, um, you know, your state of mind, depending on which stage of life you're in or whether you're going through a pandemic. Um, but you said something about picking books that had had a big influence on you, had shaped who you are or had, had somehow determined the course of your life. I can't remember what your exact wording was. So it was that that I seized on, really. And did you find it difficult? Um, I find it, well, the only thing I've, I mean, my life has very much been shaped by all the narrative arts. Um, so it isn't easy to come up with books, plays, films that have um, had an impact on me. It's just whittling them down, you know? So actually, of the ones we're going to talk about, often each one is representative like the first one is representative of books I used to read as a child there were actually a few others I could have picked likewise um there's one which is representative of books I read at university um and there were several of those at that time of life so um yeah it was more kind of whittling it down you know yeah so why don't we start then with that first one what what was it well, I mean, it's it's not going to be a particular a surprise to um, any children of my age who grew up losing themselves in fiction, but it would be The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. I don't think, do I actually need to um, summarise the plot of this book? <laughs> I think most people probably know this one. <laughs> I think they do, but I mean, you know, it's about two brothers, two sisters who are sent away in the war, to um, as, what, they, what were they called, evacuees? They're sent away to a big country house and they um, are very unsettled, discombobulated. They explore the house and end up losing themselves in um, a fictional universe that they create, that they enter through an old wardrobe. <laughs> and once they get to this fictional world of Narnia, that's where they find the Lion and the Witch. Hey. Well, there's several other, well, there's several other creatures and they fall into a whole, um, on, a, an adventure that then continues over, I mean, there's seven books altogether. One's actually a prequel, but then there's another five after it. Um, and I actually loved them all as a kid and I have reread them on several occasions since. So why did you pick this one specifically? Um, I can remember, it's one of the, I can remember, I've got a really good memory and I can remember my mum reading to me, my brother and sister when we were kids, kind of children's picture books and that kind of thing. But this is the first, I don't know what um, age range you would, it's called in publishing terms, but um, this is the first kind of bigger child, children's books, I, a book I remember being read to me. I remember one school holidays, every day she read um, to us. And, you know, after that, I started to read the others myself. And, um, you know, it was about, I mean, at the time I, I was growing up in, the 1980s in the working class north of England and it wasn't a very 
welcoming, accepting place for um, a girly, creative, and ultimately gay child like myself. And um, this book was about the power of imagination. It was about, it introduced me to the idea of escaping through imaginative play, escaping your troubles. Um, in my case, homophobic bullying, um, which was, you know, quite relentless and savage. And um, yeah, it was, um, it was brilliant. I mean, it took me a long time to work out that I wanted to be a writer because, partly because the cultural background I was from, I just didn't know any. It didn't occur to me that anybody like me could make their living from writing. But I think what it did was ignite some kind of spark in me, um, the power of creativity, you know, and um, I was always creative. So it showed me what I could do with that and just how powerful it could be and how big a presence and impact it could make on somebody's life. Did you find, because you said that you went back and you've gone back and reread it several times since, and but that your mum initially rang it and read it to you. Did you find a difference that first time that you can, can you remember going back and thinking how different it was to reading it yourself versus being read to? Or do you still hear your mum's voice if you read it? I don't still hear my mum's voice because I've read it um, so many times. I do still have the copy that she read to us. Um, absolutely. Um, I still have that. Um, but I mean, I think you've got to remember when you've got a family of three children, there's a few years between each of the children. So my older sister would have been old enough to read it for herself, I imagine, but my younger brother wouldn't. I was somewhere in between. Um, I can't remember the exact age, but um, I definitely remember reading the others. I think what I did was then went back and read them. I definitely remember reading the others because I read those for my to myself for the first time. You know, um, Prince Caspian, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, The Horse and His Boy were my favourites. Um, the Magician's Nephew is the prequel, which is... The Magician's Nephew and the last battle, the last one, um, you know... Everybody talks about them being an extended allegory for Christianity, and obviously that's how they were intended. I grew up in a very Catholic um, community and culture, and ultimately would break out of that, and always felt restricted by it. So that's absolutely not something I connected with at first, or, to be honest, even noticed. But that kind of, um, you know, having a male authority figure who everybody treats as a kind of god was something that it, I understood very easily. Um, it's only reading the books back later in life that um, the significance of Aslan the Lion and particularly, as I said, that in particular, the first and the last book, The Magician's Nephew and the Last Battle, that I've um, understood the religious significance and um, Maybe that's, as, an, as I now identify as an atheist, maybe that's why I like those the least. <laughs> Actually, the others have better stories, to be honest. Um, so, I must ask my mum whether she picked up on the religious significance of it, actually. Um, but I absolutely didn't at the beginning. I'm glad you brought it up because it was one of the next quick questions I was going to ask was about the religion and, and how religion played a part in your childhood. Um, but we'll move on because you've already answered that. Uh, so it did, and to be honest, Alex, when I, at the year, the age when I first read or had this book read to me, um, at that age, religion is, um, you know, it depends on your view of religion, and you could argue that that's when some people might say this is when religion gets its claws into you, but. Um, the way I experienced religion at that age, it was nice Bible stories and parables. And, um, you know, I wasn't aware of, certainly it wasn't when I started to be told that, um, you know, any sexual desire or sexuality and certainly the sexuality that I noticed um, blossoming in me, gay sexuality, that all that was wrong 
and that you should try to suppress your sexual urges and feel guilty and um, that, you know, my identity as a gay man was absolutely wrong. Certainly none of that um, had started by then. Yeah, if you read the book of Genesis and the Adam and Eve story, it's all about Eve being made to feel ashamed of her sexual urges. So it's all that, but um, I hadn't started to object to it by that. <laughs> You've mentioned as well about it being part of a series, seven books in total. Are you tempted as a writer to write a series of books or are you happy doing standalone novels? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, yes, I, um, this book made such an impact on me that I have toyed with the idea of um, writing children's books um, in a series. I have, um, the Madonna of Bolton is very much based on my life and my own experiences and emotions. And because that ends in 2009, for reasons I'm sure we'll go into later, um, which is when I originally first finished writing it, to be honest, it just took me so long to get it published. Um, I, a lot of people have asked, a lot of people really emotionally connected with that book and have asked if I'd like, if I'd write a sequel and I would, as now 11 years have elapsed, 12 years since the end of the time frame. Um, I definitely have got flushed out in my head an idea for a sequel. And there's a twist in that book. I don't know if you remember with um, another family member, which comes in towards the end and um, his story. And it has occurred to me that I could go back and write a prequel based on his story. My character going off in search of his uncle. Um, as you heard earlier, my story of Albert Entwistle going off in search of his long lost love. I'm obviously quite into that kind of thing. So it has occurred to me that I could make that into a series. Um, yeah, I mean, I do like the idea of it actually. As long as it doesn't become limiting, you know, when you feel trapped by it. But um, no, absolutely, I'd love to do that really interesting the idea of him going off to find his uncle I think that that certainly got legs I think find out what happened to him well also he becomes a writer doesn't he so um you know he would be interested in these stories I'm very much interested in um contemporary gay stories but I'm also interested in um stories from the past and our experiences you know if you think of um some of the things we had to go through whether it was just criminality imprisonment um, professional dismissal, um, blackmail, chemical castration, electric shock therapy, conversion therapy, execution in some cases, or at least the fear of all these things. Actually, you could argue that every ordinary gay man over a certain age in this country has an extraordinary story. Um, certainly there's intense, intense emotions going on there. And then um, that would have a big impact on the relationship with others. So um, yeah, I've started to get more and more interested in gay history and um, some of the stories of men who've lived through our recent history um, because these stories haven't been told, you know, partly because until relatively recently, readers weren't so open to those stories, mainstream readers, but also because Quite difficult to tell those stories when most gay men and women of a certain age um, spent most of their lives trying to hide all evidence and um, destroy all evidence of same-sex activity. I mean it's really difficult for historians when you look at everybody from Michelangelo to Leonardo to Tchaikovsky to Hans Christian Andersen, um, you know so many of them had same-sex relationships um, or even just desire, but it's really difficult trying to prove it when it would have landed them in prison and ruined yeah. their careers. So they spent their entire time destroying all evidence or sometimes um, descendants of younger family members destroy it after the fact, trying to um, you know, protect their reputations. So um, yeah, you could argue that it's up to novelist and it's the job of fiction to fill in the gaps. What's your next choice? 
My next choice is slightly similar thematically to The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, although it's a very adult book. It's Kiss of the Spider Woman by Manuel Puig, who's an Argentinian writer, a gay writer. And it's um, inspired by his own love of popular culture. It's about two men put in prison. It's actually um, an unnamed Latin American country. Um, but it's set about 50 years ago and, you know, it's during all the political turmoil they had at the time. One is put into prison for being gay and the other one is put into, is a political prisoner. They're put together in this horrific um, cell and um, one of them starts recounting the stories from his favourite films to the other as a means of kind of them escaping the horrors of their situation. So it is completely different to The Line of the Witch and the Wardrobe, obviously, but you can see that there's a through line there. And um, it was made into a film. It was made, I can't remember which came first. It was made into a play that I've seen done brilliantly, but it was made into a film um, that won an Oscar, I think, and um, is also brilliant. And um, yeah, that really, struck a chord with me. When did you read that? How old were you? I read this when I was at university. So I studied French and Spanish literature at university. And um, to be honest, had to read a lot, depending on the period, I had to read a lot of dry, um, academic, boring texts. Um, this is the kind of book I would have wanted to read anyway. Um, and I mean, there were plenty of others I absolutely loved, but um, this is one that really, um, I really emotionally connected with. And you, I mean, at, at university, I'm going to guess that you knew that you were gay, but you, were you out at university? Oh God, yeah, I was out from the end of sixth form. <laughs> Which I can laugh about now, but um, it was quite hardcore um at the time to be out so early i mean i was literally some kind of novelty act at university never mind the end of sixth form um but i'm one of those people i mean you know coming back to albert part of the reason albert entwistle is there gets in such a mess ends up in the closet in his 60s is because he has what's called passing privilege he can pass as a straight man therefore he has the temptation of seeking refuge from the outside world, from the hostile outside world in the closet. Um, I don't have passing privilege, which when you're young comes with some horrific side effects. You know, you're thrust onto the front line whether you like it or not. But what it does mean is, um, you know, as people become, as friends and peers become more aware of gay lives and experiences, it's more difficult for you to hide in the closet. Um, so I suspect, I mean, it was quite brave anyway, but I suspect this probably hurried things along for me, um, which may have been difficult at the time, but I'm quite thankful for now. I'd actually even go as far as saying, I'm not sure passing privilege is much of a privilege. <laughs> You've read Albert Entwistle's story, you know, um, he ends up, living a life of secrecy and lies and not being true to himself until the age of um, his sixties. You know, um, how's that a privilege? It's quite tragic. I mean, that was one of the things I thought when I was reading it was, yeah, he's, he's hidden himself in the closet and uh, sort of cut himself off from people from fear of find them finding out who he is. But it's not a happy life. It's, it's a, maybe it's a safe life, but it wasn't a happy one. No, absolutely not. He starts off, at the start of the novel, he's very unhappy. But you know, you think of, um, although you did use the word uplifting, so without wanting to give too much, <laughs> I just want to point out to any listeners that it's not a miserable read. Um, but if you think of, I can't remember whether it was last year or the year before when Philip Schofield came out. Um, I mean, he's in his fifties, I think. Um, and there's plenty of, of others I can't think of off the top of my head. But what happens is um, 
the longer you're in, the harder it is to come out in some ways because you're not just confessing to being gay, you're confessing to having lied to people. Sometimes, in some cases, getting married, starting a family in order to try and straighten yourself out or prove to yourself that you're normal or prove to everybody else that you're normal or put people off the scent. So you're, there's, you know, there's a lot going on. It's a bit of a tangled mess when you then come out. Um, Albert actually withdraws from the world. That's his, the way he copes. Um, so, yeah, but um, yeah, it is sad and tragic. Um, his life at the beginning of the book. Where did you go to university? I went to university in Cambridge, which I hesitate to say now because people associate that with privilege. When I was growing up um, in the northwest of England, both my parents had gone to, had been brought up in council houses. Um, and I went to state schools, um, really not very good state schools. Um, although I did have some inspirational teachers and I had to work and work and work um, to get out. That was my thing, academic work. Um, and getting into Cambridge was like my proudest achievement, my family's proudest achievement for years. But what happens now is you notice, I don't know if you've noticed in newspapers, they talk about Eton and Oxbridge people as having privilege. And it's like, well, it is, I know that Private schools are overrepresented at Cambridge and Oxford, but it is possible to get in there on merit. And if somebody does, you know, we shouldn't be made to feel ashamed of it. Um, I can't tell you how hard I had to work to get in there and how hard, to, how hard I had to work when I was there. So, um, you know, I don't like to feel ashamed by that. But yes, I went to Cambridge University. That's the very long answer to that. Were the people at Cambridge... Uh... Was it more of a surprise a, a gay man turning up or was it more of a surprise this gay man from Bolton turning up? <laughs> Which did well, you find more difficult? <laughs> um, I, Cambridge is made up of different colleges and to be honest, because I went to school, I think for my sixth form, somebody hadn't gone to Oxbridge for 28 years. Um, the staff really helped me apply, but they didn't know much about the admissions process or which of the 26 colleges were full of um, private school educated people and which were better and more welcoming for someone like me. Somehow I managed, I mean, this is all pre-internet, you've got to remember. Um, I actually don't know how I ended up in a, I knew, I somehow found out that the college I went to was much, um, had a much higher ratio of state school to um, private school educated kids. And I wouldn't be, on my own. I was still very much in a minority, but in terms of gays, when I arrived, there was one person in my college in third year who was gay and um, me, and that was literally it. Somebody then came out in the year above and um, somebody started in the year below. Um, but I mean, literally it was like a huge novelty. It was still quite radical in those days, you know, to be, out. But having said that, it was, you know, I can't say it was as hard as people in the 50s or 60s or, you know, pre the start of legalisation. But, um, you know, it was, we were just starting to get the first kind of green shoots of a new growing acceptance, which I think we had had in the 1970s and the AIDS crisis came along and um, turned a lot of people against us. And then in the 90s, um, you know, when the Ed Star crisis started to recede and people saw us slightly less as um, disease-carrying, dangerous predators who could infect them with, you know, um, there started to be, um, well, I mean, it was one of the things that attracted to me, me to Madonna. I mean, it was how pop stars like Madonna, um, although she was absolutely one of the first, would um, start to stand up for their gay dancers and gay friends and um, start to speak out for gay rights. And, um, you know, towards the end of the 90s, you got things like Queer as Folk and Will and Grace. And yeah, they were very um, revolutionary, but um, some people thought it was quite cool and something to embrace as a kind of, we call it virtue signaling now. We didn't have that 
then, but it was a way of people showing that they were slightly counterculture and alternative and liberal. And, um, you know, I can't pretend that um, I was frightened of being thrown in prison or anything like that, or parental rejection when I was, when I was, um, when I came out, but, you know, it was, it was starting to be a more accepting world, um, or certainly in Britain, obviously the rest of the world is a completely different matter. What's your next choice? Oh, my next choice is a biography of Thomas Hardy by Claire Tomlin. I mean, is this is quite, we are slightly jumping all over the place here. That's, that's the way I like it, so. Uh. <laughs> Good. Well, I chose this because um, I love Thomas Hardy. My mum always loved Thomas Hardy. Um, and he was another working class boy who had to go through, had to fight a lot of snobbery um, in his career. But it represents my 10 years, 12 years, I think it was, working, making documentaries for ITV. I spent a long time working on the South Bank show, the art series that ran for decades and um, profiling actors, dancers, painters, writers. And it was only around this time that I started to realize, I started to mix with other creative people, arts people, I started to realize um, that it may be a possibility that I could make a living from writing and you know, creating fictional worlds and how the kind of business and organization of this industry worked by coming into contact with other writers and creatives. Um, and Claire Tomalin is a writer. Um, I don't know if you've read any of her biographies, but um, some of them are absolutely brilliant. And they read um, like, they're so well researched, but they read like the easiest novels. Um, there's one that she wrote called The Invisible Woman, which was made into a film, which was about um, Dickens' mistress, um, Nellie Turnan. And um, she uncovered, I mean, talk about destroying evidence. He destroyed all evidence. Everybody thought he was a loving family man. And he had this long-term mistress who he then dumped his wife for quite cruelly. And um, there's, she uncovered this whole story by cracking some code in his diaries about train times or something. And um, it's brilliant. And she did one of uh, a mistress of a king in the first half of the 19th century. Um, I can't remember the name of it, which was brilliant. And she did, she had this, and then there's the Samuel Pepys and the Jane Austen, which won all the awards. Um, but there's Thomas Hardy one. Um, she wrote when I was at the South Bank show, I made a documentary about it. It was very much Claire Tomlin setting off in search of Thomas Hardy doing all her research. We did lots of filming in Dorset, where he's from, as a this big sense of place in his books, although it's the fictional Wessex. And a lot of his poetry as well. We went to the Cornish coast, where he'd fallen in love with his wife. And um, although that became a difficult relationship later on. And um, this landscape very much ended up in his poetry um, and I basically just spent a few amazing weeks in glorious sunshine with Claire Tomlin filming after doing months of research and one of the things that um, came up whilst filming this, this was the period when I'd started to write in my spare time alongside this very demanding full-time career and it was really hard and my earliest efforts just met with rejection and it was really hard to keep going and one of the things I hadn't realised was that Thomas Hardy had gone through a lot of rejection himself and a lot of critical snobbery because of his background. And um, I really connected with his story and it very much inspired me to keep going, um, to persist in my own efforts. So that first book that you wrote that was rejected, that went on to become The Madonna of Bolton. Yeah, so um, I'd start, I was writing it around then. It was, I think this is about 2006. Um, I finished it about 2007. It was just knock back, knock back, knock back by agents, 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 publishers, publishers, publishers. I rewrote it, rewrote it. Um, you know, I mean, I can li I've literally lost count of the rejection letters from agents and publishers. Um, 
But I did listen. I mean, at the beginning, to be honest, um, it could have been better. So I listened to some of their feedback and I carried on working on it, which is why even though I'd started writing it in 2006 or so, um, it actually goes up to 2009 because later drafts um, changed. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was rejected long after that. There was a round of rejections in 2016. Um, you know, it was, yeah, it was, bearing in mind, I, you know, I've touched on the fact that I felt very much rejected as a person when I was growing up. And then this is a kind of my self-expression as um, a creative person. And it was very much based on my own story of being rejected. And then this is roundly rejected, savagely so, over and over again. Um, it was horrendous, to be perfectly honest. And Thomas Hardy is one of the people, one of the things that kept me going. Um, you said that you were making a documentary with Claire Tomlin. And you you spend quite a long time doing that sort of thing and working on the culture show. Would you ever write nonfiction and go into biographies or investigative journalism? Um, to be honest, investigative journalism, all my documentaries and all my journalism was either arts journalism or later on LGBT. So there's much less investigative. Um, there was some experiential stuff in there for the kind of LGBT um, journalism, but I wasn't really an investigative um, documentary maker. And to be perfectly honest, um, after years of academic work, really having to work really hard, I kind of researched that kind of research. I just got sick of it. And if I have to do any, I mean, if I'm doing research to bring alive a setting for a fictional story, that kind of feels a bit different. But any work of, I could have, yeah, investigative journalism or biography, I'm just, I mean, you never say never, do you? But um, I don't think so at the moment. Doesn't play your boat. No, um, historical fiction is a slightly different thing. But, um, you know, bearing in mind, I, worked in documentaries and journalism for years you're very much just, you're telling stories but you've got to stick to the facts if you're doing a good job you have anyway <laughs> and, um, you know when i started writing fiction it was quite freeing and i'm not sure i want to go back to having to be constrained and restricted by you can make, you can make a more satisfying narrative in fiction it's certainly the, the, yeah, you can tidy things up and have a neater story arc and all that kind of thing. But um, in terms of the way my brain works, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's just better suited to making things up. <laughs> Even though I will take inspiration a lot from real life. What is your next choice? My next choice is The Song of Achilles by Madeline Miller. And actually what she's done here is go from, um, well, not um, historical facts, but she's gone from, although the setting is on all that and the context is all brilliantly researched, but she's taken two characters from Homer's The Iliad. So she's gone from Greek mythology. She's taken a kind of source book, if you like, and reworked two of the characters um, to create Achilles and Patroclus to create a gay love story. And this is a book that I read when I was the culture editor on Channel 4 News. And I was reporting on all the different art, art forms and creative industries. And I obviously spent a lot of time on books because it was one of my favorites and I was hoping to get into that area. And um, I used to broadcast live from the Women's Prize every year and this one one year and um, I just thought it was an absolutely, and still do, I've reread it a couple of times, think it's an absolutely gorgeous love story, never mind a gay love story. When she did it in probably 2012, although I can't remember the exact year, um, it was still very much a new thing um, to have a gay love story aimed at a mainstream readership. There's no tragedy in there. Um, 
well, actually, I don't want to um, give away the ending, but you know, but there's basically a gorgeous gay love story at the centre of it, and I absolutely loved it and still do. When um, some of your earlier attempts to get Madonna into publishers were rejected, I think it's it's sort of quite well documented that some of the rejections you got were people aren't ready for gay mainstream fiction. Uh, how did you feel? Like, did you want to just hit these people around the head with a copy of the Song of Achilles and say, yes, they are? Well, actually, um, the Song of... I mean, I started sending the Madonna of Bolton in probably about 2007, you know, if right. I was around in 2006. Um, and what a lot of what publishers said to me was, it's all right for literary fiction that clever people read, that wins awards. You can have Alan Honninghurst and things. What you can't have is the equivalent of Helen Fielding or whoever writing gay stories. So... Um, I didn't particularly feel that the Song of Achilles was any ammunition, although it did find a massive mainstream readership. Um, I would look at things like Will Young winning Pop Idol in 2002 and going on to have the best-selling song of the year as an out gay man. I would look at things like the soaps, all having gay characters, and um, not just gay characters, but gay characters with romantic storylines. Um, I would see that as kind of ammunition, um, you know, and things like Will and Grace on TV, um, which was very much aimed at a mainstream viewership. Um, but I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm sure. Um, I can't even remember whether I was going through a round of rejections for the Madonna of Bolton at the time. I don't actually think I was um, around then, but... Um, yeah, there, so many publishers said to me, it's just not going to work. There's no market. They'd say things like, it's too niche, there's no market for it. Um, gay isn't mainstream, it's too gay. Um, I mean, I've kept every single rejection email, and before that, letter. Some of them are actually printed letters. I've kept them all. And um, <laughs> I have literally kept them all. And um, I have looked back over them recently for some other project. And yeah, I mean, they are quite shocking. And to be honest, publishing's got so much better now, but I mean, it, literally all these other art forms and creative industries were having discussions about diversity and representation years before, and it was so old fashioned. And um, when I eventually, after, years of rejection for the Madonna of Bolton. When I was working as editor-in-chief of Attitude magazine and had a platform, because it was a big gay magazine and I was constantly being, commenting on gay, gay news stories on the news and whatever. I suddenly had this platform um, and I was constantly being shown examples of hit films and plays and TV shows with gay characters. I went and crowdfunded the Madonna of Bolton and um, took it to Unbound, the crowdfunding publisher. It became the fastest crowdfunded novel ever. And we whipped up this huge storm in the press and online when we were doing the crowdfunding campaign. And um, all that was brilliant. I can't remember the point I was actually gonna make. What, what point was I gonna make? Why did I start talking about this? Um, part of the reason I wanted to do this was to show that there was a market and these people were wrong. And I very much felt like I was on a kind of mission. Oh, that's what I wanted to say. Um, I very much felt like I was on a mission to prove the publishing industry wrong. I did a big piece for the bookseller magazine at the time in my guy, in my role as editor-in-chief of Attitude, talking about my experiences of homophobia in publishing. And if you think about the word homophobia, I mean, it sounds very incendiary and it's used you know, a lot now to talk about hatred, but actually phobia in, it, in its most accurate sense means fear. And that was a lot of what was going on in the industry as I saw it. And yeah, I really wanted to shake things up. And who knows um, how much wider impact taking that stand had, but um, over the last couple of years, publishing has got much better, absolutely. And not I just think with... Sorry, not just with gay stories, but, um, you know, 
ethnic diversity, um, gender diversity. Yeah, I mean, there's still a way to go, but it's so much better than it was. I think some people who are not in the industry might be shocked at how recently some of these attitudes have started to change. I, I was, I mean, I started working in a retailer back in 2007 um, and I was talking to publishers, I was talking to colleagues, you know, about, about the books that I was writing, about the things that I was doing. And you would still hear, you know, even 2012, 2013, oh, well, yeah, I mean, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be going into this main campaign. You know, it's, if it's about gay character, it, it, it's just not going to do that. It will do this. And, and people were already putting it into a niche before oh, they, they were seeing it and allowing other people to decide. I mean, it was shocking. I, Madonna had, Madonna, the Madonna of Bolton had its last round of rejections in about 2016, just before I started working at Attitude. And I think that year, well, the year before, Sam Smith had had the biggest selling album in the world of pop music, singing about his unrequited love for another man. And um, the rubbish that publishers were coming out with, they were so disconnected from the people they were meant to be serving. Yeah. And, um, you know, it was, it was so frustrating. And yeah, I mean, it was shocking some of the things that were said. And, you know, it was humiliating for me to go public and say, look at all these rejections I've had, because I know there were some people online who were like, oh, the box obviously crap. You know, you just wanted to use it um, as a stick to beat me with. But um, yeah, it was, um, I mean, it did feel like something shifted in that um, time, certainly for me it's been easier for me to write stories um, about gay characters and their experiences since. Back to the Song of Achilles, uh, you mentioned earlier as well that maybe you would, might look at historical fiction, it'd be different. Would you ever go and write something that isn't contemporary romance, romantic fiction? Yeah, I've definitely got lots of ideas that I absolutely want to do. And um, the fact that there are so many gaps in the historical record, I think is a gift um, to somebody like me. Um, and it's something I'd very much like to explore in the future. Right now, um, we're looking at kind of contemporary stories, but yeah, absolutely. I just think there's so many stories that haven't been told. What's your next choice? One Day by David Nichols. I love this book. Everybody loves this book. I mean, it's just the most amazing book, isn't it? And, um, you know, if if anybody listening hasn't read it, it tells a 20-year love story through a series of set-piece scenes taking place on the same day at yearly intervals, since Swithin's Day, is it called? Um, and it's this will-they-won't-they-get-together. Um, you're desperate for... Um, these two characters to get together. It's episodic. And um, when I read it, I can't remember whether I was rewriting Madonna of Bolton or sending it out to publishers or whatever, but that's an episodic book. Every scene is structured around a Madonna song that impacts on this character's life. Um, so the structure of it um, very much, um, you know, um, I was very, I was just intrigued and interested by it. And I just think it's one of the, th the people often ask me about what I most look for in a book and it's about books that have been written with compassion and sensitivity and, um, you know, draw human emotions sensitively and compassionately. And I just think this is one of the best examples of that. Where were you in your life when you when you read this? I actually can't quite remember. I think I was, I think I was working at Channel 4 News. Um, I had had all this problem, all these problems getting my Madonna of Bolton book published. Um, publishers said to me, why don't you write stories with straight female characters with a nice gay best friend who doesn't have sex or anything? <laughs> and, um, you know, I mean, I, to be honest, I was insulted by that, but I've got so many ideas. I could find a way of doing it that um, wouldn't compromise the kind of stories I wanted to tell. So I did write a couple of those books for Pam McMillan 
um, which I loved and that was all great. But I think actually the first one was very much like a romantic comedy. It's called Shot Through the Heart. It's about a Hollywood actress who falls in love with a paparazzi photographer and he becomes very jealous. I mean, you've got to remember that is in those days, um, seven or eight years ago, before social media and camera phones really took off, they were the ultimate enemies. So this Hollywood actress and the paparazzi photographer fall in love, but he gets very jealous of her close relationship with her co-star, who he doesn't realize is a closeted gay man. And as you know, with any secrets in any stories, they tend to find a way of coming out. Um, so I found a way of telling that story, that um, the kind of story publishers wanted um, without compromising um, what I was wanting to do. And when I was writing a romant this romantic comedy, the actress in my book um, was the star of a lot of romantic comedies, but ironically couldn't find love herself. And in that book, I very much kind of used a lot of the motifs of romantic fiction and romantic comedy films. And um, so I was reading a lot of them and trying to be inspired by romance and love stories, actually. Romance means something slightly different in publishing, doesn't it? But love stories. And this was the one that inspired me the most. You've already touched upon it, about it sort of having this premise of uh, revisiting these people's lives uh, every year on a certain day. Uh, are there any sort of quirky premises or experimental sort of fiction that you might want to, that you've kind of got bubbling away in your head that you want to have a go at? Um, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I've just read The Midnight, Midnight Library by Matt Haig. Um, I like those kind of high concept um, books. It gives you a framework to play around in. Um, when I read that, I was having lots of ideas of something along those lines, the kind of high concept thing I'd like to write. Um, but actually, in terms of the one day structure, I mean, it was, you know, in some ways, the Madonna of Bolton was, I mean, I was writing it before I'd... Um, certainly completed several drafts before I read one day, but um, the episode, you know, it's about a young boy growing up in the Northwest of England, the working class culture, who has a really hard time for being gay, finds his escape and his emotional crutch in Madonna and her music and what she stands for. And um, it set over 25 years and each theme, each chapter rather, is structured around a Madonna song. So that's kind of, so far, my um, high concept contribution. <laughs> Is this a good time to talk about your next book? Your next choice? <laughs> yes. Well, I feel like we've, weirdly, I feel like that book come up a lot more than Albert Entwistle has. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure there's that much more to say about it. Unless, why don't, I mean, I've told you what it's about. Why don't you... Is there anything you want to ask me about it? So, so your next choice, let's just be clear, is the Madonna of Bolton. Um, and you, I mean, it was quite, it, it, it made a lot of news at the time about uh, the, the crowdfunder. It was the most, uh, the quickest crowdfunded book. What was it like for you, having done the book Shot Through the Heart and Nothing But Trouble that you did with Pan Macmillan? to suddenly going to this crowdfunder model and working with this new publisher, who presumably, did they do things in a different way? Did you find it more difficult? Was it easier? Um, that's interesting. So, um, first of all, there were some things I liked the sound of, some things I didn't like the sound of with this model, but the truth was, it was the last chance saloon for me. I had no other options, literally. Um, so I just got on with it. And something in every time this book got rejected and I tried to put it in the bottom drawer, something stirred within me and I couldn't quite let go. Um, especially when I was working at Attitude and we were interviewing all these Hollywood stars who were in big films with gay, playing gay characters and all the rest of it, TV shows. And I felt I had enough proof and ammunition to do it. Um, in terms of the publishing process, the crowdfunding side of it was all quite exciting, to be honest. Um, you know, it had a real momentum. Everybody there was very dynamic and um, 
ready to go and everybody was energized and all behind it. And um, I basically walked in and I said, I don't just want to crowdfund this book. I want to make it the fastest crowdfunded novel you've ever done. And I want to enlist kind of celebrities I'd worked with and attitude and people who had a big social media presence and get them behind it and whip up a storm and share some of the things publishers had said to me in my rejection letters. And, um, you know, tried to get everybody else outraged and change the world a bit. And that was all very exciting. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was very exciting. I mean, by the time we got to getting into shops, I mean, in terms of the publishing, once we'd done that, the actual editing and proofing and all that was um, quite similar to traditional publishing. By the time it came to getting it into shops, you know, I was aware that I was with a kind of small underdog indie publisher who didn't have quite the presence in bookshops that Pam McMillan had had, had, had and that made things a bit more difficult. Um, and there was the occasional frustration there. But um, like I say, it was my last roll of the dice. So, you know, my frustrations were um, overcome. Well, it worked, obviously, because you are now um, with another publisher. You're with Headline um, for The Secret Life of Albert Entwistle, a more traditional uh, sort of form of publisher. Uh, how did that come about? Did they approach you after the success of Madonna or? Well, funnily enough, they are a more traditional publisher, but actually it's in the time since I worked at Pam McMillan and now working with Headline, um, even traditional publishers are much more, um, there's not actually that much that's traditional about the, I mean, there's so much is engagement online and um, working algorithms on Amazon and working with bloggers to get lots of reviews and all that kind of stuff. Um, doesn't feel particularly traditional. It's certainly a big, well-established publisher. How did it come about? Well, interestingly, um, the, the last um, round of submissions that um, the Madonna of Bolton went out on, there was an editor at another publisher who I probably shouldn't name, who really wanted to buy this book and was really passionate about it. We had a, lot, we had a couple of meetings, we had lots of discussions about it. But when she took it to her editorial meeting with the other departments at the publisher, she tried and tried and tried and couldn't get it through. And after the Madonna of Bolton, I did have several approaches and after it was successful and several approaches and conversations with publishers, I was very inspired by some of the uplit, as it's known, uplifting fiction that I'd read around the time. Eleanor Oliphant is completely fine. The Joanna Cannon books you mentioned, the um, Rachel Joyce books you mentioned and The Unlikely Pilgrimage of Harold Fry is gonna be my last choice of book that we're gonna talk about. But I noticed that with all these books that were doing well, you know, I thought um, I'd tried so hard, I'd had to work so hard for commercial success and I thought, right, I love these books. They're all doing well in the market at the moment. And um, they all have unhappy characters who are older, who have to go back into their past, delve back to confront an unresolved trauma and resolve it in order to be happy. And I thought, oh, I'd always wanted to write a story about lost love. Um, again, I'm going back to look for a lost love. And it struck me that if you were to look at an older person's life, you'd be hard pushed to find something that there was less acceptable socially 50 years ago as gay men than is kind of accepted and even celebrated in some quarters now. And I thought that could be quite interesting because while, while a gay man may be celebrated and all the girls at work love to hang out with you and all the rest of it and everybody wants to take you out drinking and dancing and, oh, I love gays, all my friend, friends are gays. We, you know, we all hear these things a lot, which is great. I'm not complaining, but, um, you know, 50 years ago, um, it was literally, we were literally social pariahs um, and um, any relationship would have been, um, most relationships would have been torn apart. And I thought this was interesting, um, interesting territory to explore. And it was, um, you know, I've picked Harold Fry by Rachel Joyce because it's probably my favourite of those books, but it was reading a lot of those books um, 
which are about unhappy um, social misfits um, getting to the bottom of a deep-rooted trauma in order to turn their lives around. Um, and again, I think Rachel Joyce writes with amazing compassion and sensitivity. And it was, um, this was one of the things that really um, struck me and drew me into the unlikely pilgrimage of Howard Fry. And yes, yeah, so that is my seventh choice of book. And that brings me on to Albert Entwistle because I realized I wanted to tell a similar story, but a gay story. And I did want it to be about somebody reconnecting, or not reconnecting, but starting to connect with his community um, as we began the podcast by discussing. You know, um, we're slightly going full circle, but yeah, that's kind of the story. And it was picked up by this publisher who'd wanted the Madonna of Bolton, but had been thwarted in her attempts to acquire it for her previous employer. And now he's working for Headline. And she commissioned me, she bought this book off me. Brilliant. So, so did you consider crowdfunding it again or did you just go straight to her with it and say? Um, no, I didn't consider crowdfunding. I mean, um, yeah, I didn't consider crowdfunding it because crowdfunding was something I'd very much turned to out of necessity because I couldn't get that book published and I wanted to cause a stir. And I can see now that if actually this editor had been able to acquire it for her previous publisher, it possibly wouldn't have, without the backing of the rest of the in-house team, it possibly wouldn't have broken through in quite the same way. And I kind of think maybe that's how Madonna was meant to get out into the world with everybody being outraged by all the rejection it had and that powered it through. And maybe this is how I was meant to work with that editor yeah. on the next book with a very mainstream publisher and hopefully make it a big mainstream hit. Um, so I kind of, um, it's not like I loved the idea of crowdfunding in itself. It was a means to an end. And I very much embraced everything it could offer in getting me to that end. But um, I didn't consider crowdfunding Albert and Twistle, no. Um, back to Madonna of Bolton. Um, there was a, I, I don't think I'm imagining this, it was an option for a film. Where are we at with that? Yeah. Um, I'm not allowed to talk about this. Oh, everybody option, always says that. <laughs> it was option for a film, which was very exciting. Um, the option didn't come to anything, to cut a long story short. And the rights have been bought for a different art form. And um, it's quite far along the way. Oh, and um, there is more than a first draft of the script and a director appointed and exciting things happening, but I really can't talk about them. It's not, it's not from that I don't want to, I would just get into so much trouble if I did. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully that book is going to have a new lease of life um, because, well, hopefully through readers of Albert getting into it, but also um, this new adaptation. Um, and that's all very exciting. Well, hopefully, fingers crossed, hopefully we'll hear some news soon. Um, if I made you pick one of the seven books that we've talked about today as the most important to you, which would you pick? If I had to pick my favourite, it would probably be The Song of Achilles by Madeline Miller. If I had to pick the most important, I would say for my entire life, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, if you were to say the most important to me now, it would probably be The Unlikely Pilgrimage of Harold Fry, because that's got me to where I am now at this stage of my career with Albert. I love that you've given me free answers to that. Thank you very much. Um, what's next? Obviously, we've got the top secret adaptation that you can't tell us anything more about. But is there a book free in the pipeline that you're working on? Um, yes. Um, yes. And my publisher wants a long term relationship, to use um, a term from romantic comedies. And um, we are in the process of pursuing 
the next step in that long-term relationship. <laughs> well, that's good to hear. It, it sounds like you're going to be around for a while with some more books. I hope so. You're not getting rid of me just yet. <laughs> wouldn't want to, wouldn't want to. Um, Matt Cain, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for having me. My guest this week was Matt Cain, and you can order his latest book, Secret Life of Albert Entwistle, at burtsbooks.co.uk right now. Join me again next time when another guest will be exploring their shelf life.